We're going to keep our progress moving through the Westminster Confession of Faith. Tonight, uh, looking at chapter 24, which is entitled, Of Marriage and Divorce. I put a a little handout on on the tables if you wanted to take, it's it's primarily simply a copy of that six-paragraph chapter with a few. Uh, I've got all of the Westminster Assembly's um, scripture-proof passages there, and I've given you a bit of a summary, just a very, very brief summary, as it uh, is stated, about what each of those six paragraphs contains. But I want to begin with some familiar words I take thee to be my wedded husband or wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do us part." Other than interacting with our triune God, it's difficult for me to imagine more sobering, profound words that any human being will ever utter. And I don't know that uh, anyone has ever uttered those words, frankly, that really understood the depth of them and the potential uh, of those words. <clears throat> We're going to, uh, to move through what the confession takes up, and even that is a bit uh, unusual because the Westminster Confession of all of the Reformed confessions, it's the only one that mentions marriage. I think uh, in a minute we'll see why that is, perhaps. Uh, but we're going to look at, at this uh, chapter. It's, it's concise, brief. It's not a, uh, a counseling session on marriage and problems that can can be encountered, but it does lay down boundaries which would head off a great many problems and uh, interesting on a number of levels. So let's look first at paragraph one of the confession, chapter 24, says this, marriage uh, is to be between one man and one woman, neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Now, it starts out a bit, uh, I would say slowly and matter-of-factly, but apparently that's not the case in the 21st century in the United States of America. All of these concepts are now being challenged, ridiculed, uh, destroyed, frankly, by those who want to go down very, very unwise pathways. but the confession lists uh, three passages there. We'll look at a couple of them. But what this first paragraph is simply saying is that the nature of marriage and the principle of monogamy is something that is laid out early in Scripture. It's a creation ordinance. Those ordinances that are established by God uh, in early Genesis that are meant to be uh, for as long as this universe survives. And 
Genesis 2 verse 24 is the beginning of them. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Again, incredibly uh, to me, it, 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 uh, it never ceases to amaze me how much the Bible can pack into one sentence or less. Uh, this sentence uh, could be the, um, a litmus test for a lot of things. And what it's stating, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Now, that leaving uh, and holding fast, we usually call it leaving and cleaving, If only when people were married, they would obey that simple, simple command, but sometimes very difficult to carry out and disastrously disobeyed. Uh, When one is married, I I used to hear counselors tell me it's, it's, don't ever let anybody tell you marriage is a 50-50 proposition. It's a hundred hundred. We are giving to each other 100% whether or not anything comes back in return. And I can't do that if I haven't left my parents. So simple though it may be, leaving father and mother, holding fast to your wife, and becoming, in point of fact, one flesh. Now that's going to come back as we move through this chapter, but that is a concept uh, that uh, Scripture never leaves behind, and that leads us to that second passage, a very, very important passage. We'll get to this several times over these six paragraphs, but Matthew 19, verses 3 to 6 is uh, where I will go, start a little bit early. It says, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That passage is is reiterating a lot of things. Uh, Namely, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So right from the beginning of this chapter in the confession, the proper gender, that is male and female, man and woman, and proper number, one father, one mother, one husband, one wife, for marriage, those things are addressed at the beginning, and monogamy is assumed. One wife, one husband at one time. Unfortunately, monogamy may be assumed, but it was not followed biblically. By the time you get to the fourth chapter, you read this in Genesis 4, verse 19. And Lamech took two wives. And this was fairly, fairly routine, I guess. That may, not, that may be not quite the right word, but it was, it was commonplace in the Old Testament so this notion of monogamy and the notions that we've read already are, uh, through sin, are being violated. And finally, a couple of more verses from Matthew chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. They read this. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're alluding there. The Pharisees are alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. That's another important passage. We'll get to that again later. 
He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Now those are interesting statements that Jesus is making uh, to these Pharisees. And notice, as is typical of the Pharisees, they have misquoted the Old Testament. They have misled the statements that Moses uh, commanded. Uh, when they say, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce? He didn't command it. He allowed it. And Jesus uh, corrects them on that. I'm going to uh, read a couple of, of lines from a man named John Murray. One of the books that I've written in your handout uh, that I highly recommend is a book simply called Divorce. Now, Murray goes into to marriage, divorce, and remarriage in his book. It's a small book. And it's very, very intensely written, which everything from John Murray was. Uh, but uh, it's worth reading, frankly, if for nothing else than to see what it means to deeply exegete a passage of Scripture. But here's what John Murray says, addressing this apparent conflict. The Pharisees come up and says, well, how come Moses said you're commanded to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus said, no, he allowed it. And that's because... Uh, from the beginning, it wasn't so. As the hardness of your heart is, is where Moses uh, bent on that one. Here's what Murray says, quote, This is just saying that certain freedom in the matter of divorce was tolerated. In this respect, the difference between the Old and New Testament appears. Uh, again, the notion of, of progressive revelation, if you will, the, these issues that surround marriage and divorce in the Old Testament uh, become more fully amplified when you get to the New Testament. Uh, Murray goes on to say, this freedom conceded or suffered under the Mosaic economy is removed under the gospel dispensation. In other words, when you get to the New Testament, uh, this notion of a certificate of divorce disappears. Uh, Murray continues, it's highly necessary, however, to distinguish between this sufferance or toleration on the one hand and divine approval or sanction on the other. Permission, sufferance, toleration was granted, but underlying this very notion is the idea of wrong. In other words, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, yes, in Old Testament times, this was allowed, tolerated, but it was wrong. So what would be a better solution? Well, let's move to the second paragraph. Paragraph 2 <clears throat> says, Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with legitimate issue, and of the church with unholy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. In other words, paragraph 2 is giving you the purposes of marriage. Chad Van Dixhorn summarizes them this way. Four purposes. One, marriage is for mutual support. Secondly, it's for the reproduction of the human race. Thirdly, it's for church growth. And fourthly, it is for sexual purity. Now, Genesis 2 verse 18 comes under that first heading of mutual support. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You remember the story of, of creation when God has, has made Adam and he's... He sees that, as uh, is stated, it's not good that the man should be alone. So I'm going to make a helper fit for him. 
What marriage establishes is this mutual help of husband and wife. Though Eve was created to be Adam's helper, according to R.C. Sproul, quote, the heaviest burden to provide support and help is given to the man, commanded by God to love his wife as Christ loved and gave himself to the church. The husband's support is often incorrectly characterized as servant leadership, servant headship, Christ-like leadership. The woman, on the other hand, is called to be submissive to her husband's leadership. Today, in our unbelieving culture, that view is absolutely unacceptable. I can tell you uh, how discouraging it was uh, for me personally when I were, was um, interviewing and, and counseling and discussing uh, with a couple who who uh, was interested in in getting married, and this happened more than once, uh, the woman would normally categorically say, "I am not going to be submissive to this man. Uh, I never married them uh, when I heard that, if I could not uh, help them understand the importance of it. Uh, but the woman is called to be submissive to the husband's leadership. That does not mean heavy-handed. Uh, it, it's not that you've got the man, husband up here and the wife down here. Both are here, but they're given different roles. One is to be the lead, one is to be the submissive one. That does not mean that the woman as the submissive partner has no say in anything. If the husband does his leadership properly and wisely, he's going to be often and always interacting with his wife to get her opinion because he will be wise enough to know that often her opinion is better than his and he will follow it in those cases. But uh, nonetheless, this notion of submissiveness is something that in this culture, because we've had 40, 50 years of, of feminist um, teaching and, and statements and, and everything in between them, uh, that's very, very difficult to come by these days, and it's, it, it's leading to the uh, disintegration of, of marriage, frankly. Uh, Sproul, however, taking up the notion of, of the submissiveness of the woman, the, Sproul goes on to say this, I've asked Christian women who struggle with the biblical mandate to be submissive to their husbands, if you were married to Christ, would you have a hard time submitting yourself to his headship? I've never met a Christian woman who said yes. In other words, that said yes, I'd have, I wouldn't submit to him either. I don't know that that answers too many questions, however. Here's another interesting take on it. Kathy Keller, uh, Tim Keller and, and uh, Tim and Kathy Keller have written a book called, called The Meaning of Marriage. I've put it in, in your handout. as a, I, I like it. It's got a lot of good things to say in it. Uh, Kathy Keller s states this. In Philippians 2, 5 to 11, we have one of the earliest hymns to Jesus sung by the church, which celebrates that although Jesus was equal with God, he emptied himself of his glory and took on the role of a servant. Jesus shed his divine privileges without becoming any less divine, and he took on the most submissive role, that of a servant who dies in his master's service. Jesus' willing acceptance of this role was wholly voluntary, a gift to his father. Then she says this, I discovered here that my submission in marriage was a gift I offered, not a duty coerced from me. 
It was this passage that entirely took the sting out of the subordinate role assigned to the female sex. Again, I'm not, uh, the, the word subordinate is, uh, I'm not really comfortable there, that, uh, but it is a different role, and it is, I think, interesting to consider that passage. Now, that's the first, uh, the first of the four of, of purposes of marriage, uh, but I, it would be difficult to overstate the impact of that. Uh, if you have two leaders in one unit, just imagine a snake with a head at each end. Uh, how much good progress is that snake going to make? Not many. Uh, so you've got to have uh, a place where the buck stops. That buck is going to stop with the man, uh, but not in every instance. If if the man sees that the woman has has more to offer, is wiser in a certain area, he would be wise to follow and listen and mandate what his wife has suggested to him. Anyway, second of the four purposes, reproduction. The most fundamental unit of the human society, of course, is the family. That's, that is the amazing thing to me about marriage. Marriage is, is that uh, event that allows the formation of a family, and the family is the core of every culture on the surface of the planet. It always has been, it always will be. That is why today, when this culture goes so far out of its way to destroy the family unit, it is destroying the culture with it. That has, there's never been an exception to that. If you destroy the family, you destroy the culture. Marriage is that thing which wraps it uh, and makes it possible. Uh, composed of a husband, wife, and usually children. Children come into this married husband and wife through the sexual relationship between the two of them. That relationship outside of the marriage bond is supposed to lead to what uh, illegitimacy is tagged uh, on most of the children that come in that direction. Under ordinary conditions, therefore, children are born in the protective cocoon of the married family. I often think about the power of the sexual relationship and the fact that God sort of wraps this cocoon of marriage around it. It it protects in both directions. Very, very important to, to understand that. Third of the four reasons, a holy seed for the church to grow. In Scripture, a large family is a tremendous blessing a blessing from the Lord, among other reasons, because children raised in the Christian home by parents dedicated to the child-rearing task, to the nurture and admonition of the Lord, become covenant children taken under the wing of the congregation to assist in this God-honoring, glorifying task. Uh, every, every baptism we have here uh, has such a, a clarity to it because you see that it's bigger it's bigger than just that family. That family is united to the church. It's a, it, we are united to one another. Uh, all of these things are a fellowship that, that grows with the, uh, with the church itself, not just the local church either, but, uh, but a larger concept of church here. And it's all one that works together when it works well to help the, the parents raise the children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And finally, the fourth reason for marriage, sexual purity. Marriage is the only legitimate relationship where sexual activity may be undertaken. All other sexual behavior outside of marriage is unclean. We're going to move on uh, to the third paragraph. 
It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent. Yet, it's the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. We're going to hammer that one several times before we're finished. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, and other idolaters. Neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such as are notoriously wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresies. Wow. Uh, Interesting paragraph there. It is the duty of the Christian to marry only in the Lord. But the paragraph begins by saying, who can marry? Well, just about anybody. Uh, It's lawful for all sorts of people to marry, confession says, who are able with judgment to give their consent. Chad Van Dixhorn puts it this way. Christians need to be marriage maximalists, not marriage minimalists. What he means by that is marriage is a wonderful thing and Christians should not only endorse it and support it, but should embrace it, love it, pray for it, and be proud of it. In other words, as the preceding paragraph implied, marriage in and of itself is a good thing. While some have the gift of purity and may not marry, most people do not and therefore should seek to be married. Again, a tragic, tragic indicator in our own culture that marriage itself as an institution is being denigrated. Uh, 24-7 issues are coming up that... um, that want to play down the role of marriage and childbearing within that very special God-ordained cocoon. However, the paragraph continues, though virtually anyone may marry, it is the duty of the Christian to marry only in the Lord, meaning that Christians must marry other Christians. That short statement would save untold suffering in marriages and families. Otherwise, the Christian becomes, quote, unequally yoked. That's a statement, that's a phrase that comes from 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine. That Pauline verse says this, a wife or a husband is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. The notion of a Christian marrying only another Christian never, ever leaves. There's another uh, passage that's not alluded to in the confession, but it's very, very helpful. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. Paul says this, the heading of this paragraph is called the temple of the living God, but it says this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's about as clear as it can be said, I think. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, 
says the Lord Almighty. That's a powerful passage. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18. Now, building upon the foundation of truth of this uh, mandate for Christians to marry only other Christians, you then have a fascinating statement. It then deduces that such as profess the true reform religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters, nor with such as are notoriously wicked or who maintain damnable heresies. Now, that uh, seems pretty obvious, patently obvious on the surface of it, uh, but interesting uh, stridency to it. A lot of people find that statement fairly unusual. There's a book, another book I want to recommend to you, a man named Robert Lethem. He is a, he's himself is an Englishman, uh, Dr. Lethem, born in London. Uh, he's an adjunct professor at Westminster. I had the pleasure of uh, having a class with uh, Dr. Lethem, but uh, he's a reform scholar, and he brings something interesting to the table. He wrote a book called The Westminster Assembly, but the subheading of the title is what's important reading its theology in historical context. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Westminster Confession is the only confession of the Reformed faith, only major confession that ever mentions the word marriage. Why would that be? Well, Lethem has some fascinating uh, theories, especially relative to the word papist. Don't marry a papist. We read that and we assume Roman Catholic. I think somewhat correctly. What Lethem says is that's an essentially political term for anyone that was in league with France or Spain plotting to overthrow the Protestant faith and install a king on the throne of England who would renew allegiance to Rome contrary to English independence. Now, this is something uh, that uh, is, I think, important to take into effect when you uh, consideration when you look at the Westminster Confession. The politics within England, especially in mid-17th century when the Westminster Assembly was formed and the Westminster Confession was written, must be taken into consideration when you bump into statements like this. He goes on to say it's why neither the, the French Confession, the Scots Confession, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Second Helvetic Confession, nor the Canons of Dort say anything about marriage. So why would this group of... Uh, folks from Great Britain assembled there in London, why would they put this entire chapter in the confession again? Here's some of the points Lethem makes. He said, you have to understand that the papacy was what first brought the gospel to England, 597 AD. So almost, well, a little more than a thousand years before the assembly. Pope Gregory the Great brings the gospel to England. That placed the English church under the church of Rome until 1532, a thousand years. The church of England is, is under uh, the church of, of Rome. Therefore, uh, for those 1,000 years, the Christians in England uh, had this attachment to the church in Rome. But the break came in the early 1530s, as we all know, when King Henry VIII decided to make a little, a few waves. He became the head of the Church of England, as we know, and the Roman Catholic Church lost any legal existence in the country of England. 
This is in the 1530s. The English church was now independent of Rome for the first time in more than a thousand years. Laws were passed that prohibited Roman Catholics in England to travel more than five miles from their home under penalty of imprisonment. They were banned from serving in parliament. They were banned from a university education well into the 19th century, into the 1800s. If a Roman Catholic priest was found, he was executed, not because of heresy, but because of treason. In other words, he was executed for political reasons. 1588, the Spanish Armada, an attempt by the Roman Catholics of Spain to, uh, to invade England. It failed. 1605, something called the Gunpowder Plot led to Guy Fawkes Night, which is still celebrated. Uh, it's one of the main holidays in England. Uh, when a plot that was supposed to kill the King of England and the members of Parliament and take over the throne for Roman Catholicism miraculously came undone. There were other issues. Bloody Mary takes over as queen, 1553. She burns a lot of heretics at the stake. The tortures of the Spanish Inquisition, the Netherlands Revolt, 1566, St. Bartholomew's Massacre in France that killed, depending on who you read, anywhere from 20 to 70,000 Huguenots, Reformed Protestants in France, murdered by Roman Catholics. Charles I comes to the throne in England in 1625. He marries Henrietta Maria, a practicing Catholic, 1625. She tries to reestablish the Catholic faith. Bishop William Laud is appointed in 1633 as the Archbishop of Canterbury. He tries to help Charles to reestablish Catholicism. The Westminster Assembly convenes less than 10 years later in the middle of all of this. And the key to it all is to understand that England, unlike America, never ever has considered separation of church and state. They wanted these things. They thought it was correct that the, the head politician, the king or the queen, was head of the church. So you can see the threat that Roman Catholicism was and therefore the stridency that they bring to this notion of marriage. Now, having said every bit of that, what holds and trumps everything I just said was what Jesus said and what Scripture says. A Christian must never marry an unbeliever. And whether you call a papist, an infidel, I don't care what you call it, but a Christian must marry a Christ, another Christian and only another Christian. We're going to see why in a minute. Let's move on to paragraph 4. Marriage ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden by the word. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties so as those persons may live together as man and wife. What that paragraph is talking to is the issue of incest, which is a, a bit of a nebulous term, uh, open, uh, open uh, for interpretation somewhat within different cultures and within components of different cultures. Uh, out of curiosity, uh, this past week, I called up the probate court here in Greenville, and I said, uh, tell me about consanguinity. 
And uh, the first couple of folks said, what? I, I said, well, I don't get it either, but, but uh, can I, could I marry my sister? She said, well, absolutely not. I said, well, why not? They said, well, we've got laws again. I said, well, I don't want to see the law. So here's what the law of South Carolina says. No man shall marry his mother, grandmother, daughter, granddaughter, stepmother, sister, grandfather's wife, son's wife, grandfather's wife, wife's mother, wife's grandmother, wife's daughter, wife's granddaughter, brother's daughter, sister's daughter, father's sister, mother's sister, or another man. Yes, South Carolina. Uh, that, those are laws of consanguinity and affinity. Things that come to a relationship either based on bloodline or based on relationship. Uh, they can lead to bad things in terms of childbearing, but uh, they're, they're uh, frowned upon in, in Scripture as well. We're going to look at some of the passages there. Uh, these are boundaries in, in paragraph 4 that, that cannot be crossed, period. This is, this is uh, in violation of Scripture. Leviticus chapter 18 the entire chapter is where you would want to go if you wanted to read about issues of, uh, of sexual sin, in particular incestuous sin. Here's a verse from Amos, Amos chapter 2, verse 7. said, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. That God there is speaking through his prophet Amos, uh, bringing judgment to Israel and um, speaking against incestuous relationships. 1 Corinthians 5.1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. That is the issue in Corinth where Paul uh, is going to excommunicate this particular individual from the church because this, of the heinousness of this sin. Now, if you ever visit Corinth... Uh, it, it's stunning to me when you're sitting there in the streets of Corinth, directly beside the city is a large uh, mountain. It looks like lots of like Devil's Tower here in the United, United States. It's, a, it's, a, it's the, a volcanic cone is what it is uh, that has uh, been eroded so that only the cone is there. But on top of that, and it's a thousand or so feet tall, was a prostitute temple that all the citizens of Corinth would go up up the uh, mountain. Uh, Corinth was a very vile, sexually immoral city. And uh, this is one of those. But, but here Paul draws a line and says, we, we're not tolerating that at all. Uh, that is something uh, that even pagans wouldn't be doing. In Mark chapter 6, verse 18, uh, John the Baptist had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife Issues of blood relation and familial relation. Uh, we'll move over to, uh, I knew I would forget this. We'll move to paragraph five. Now these two concluding paragraphs uh, probably have um, the most meat in them in terms of day-to-day -day interaction in marriage. Here's what, chap what uh, paragraph five says. Adultery or fornication committed after a contract being detected before marriage gives just occasion to the innocent party to dissolve that contract. Now that's talking about a contract before a marriage. The, the next sentence, 
changes. In the case of adultery after marriage, it is lawful for the innocent party to sue out a divorce and after the divorce to marry another as if the offending party were dead. So we'll unpack this a little bit. That first sentence in paragraph 5 is talking about this pre-engagement concern. It was what brought Joseph to want to bring a certificate of divorce against Mary when he found that she was pregnant before they were married. Now, the issue of these is uh, dependent upon the fact that premarital contracts were binding documents in early Israel. They are not that way anymore I, I don't, there may be places where they are, but they're certainly not in the United States or in America or England or any of the Western cultures today. Uh, if you have a, an engagement ring or whatever, you have an intent to marry, but you are not legally bound to carrying through with an engagement concept. It's the second sentence and what follows that becomes uh, pretty dramatic in paragraph five. It relates to events after a marriage. In the events described here, a Christian is allowed to end his or her marriage by divorce should his or her mate be found guilty of committing adultery. In other words, this is the first time, this is the first example of some sort of issue in a marriage that can lead biblically to divorce. Not only can a divorce be granted, but the innocent party in the marriage may proceed to remarry following the divorce. There were several passages in Matthew that the Westminster divines uh, called attention to. They're all very, very significant. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 31, 32 is a portion, of course, on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in which he references certificates of divorce found in Deuteronomy 24, that passage I alluded to earlier, Deuteronomy 24, 1 to 4, a practice that was granted by God through the law of Moses in the Old Testament times. Now, Matthew 5, 31, 32 says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, adultery, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot in here, and we don't, uh, we're not going to get into all of the uh, permutations of that statement. However, what I want to call your attention to is the phrase, it was also said, but I say to you. Many, many people read that chapter out of the Sermon on the Mount, and they assume that Jesus is saying, you know what they said, what Moses said in the Old Testament days, but I'm saying something different. That is an absolutely inaccurate way to read that. Jesus is not saying, Moses said this, but forget that. I'm telling you that what Jesus is doing here in this fifth chapter, and he does it throughout 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, is deepening and fleshing out what Moses said. He's not taking one jot or tittle from the law. No no aspect of the law ever goes away. Jesus deepens it. You remember what he does right in the same chapter, Matthew 5, when he talks about uh, anger. And he talks about you don't have to commit physical murder 
to be guilty of this if you simply harbor angry thoughts towards someone. You are guilty of this. In the, in the aspect of, of lust, verses 20 or 27 to 32, rather, uh, which is uh, the part where this, these two verses are taken, uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's showing the breadth and the depth of Old Testament law. He's saying, I'm, I'm fulfilling it. I'm not saying that Moses uh, said anything wrong or that the Bible uh, says anything wrong. I'm telling you the depth of what it was that Moses was speaking. John Murray, again, from his book entitled Divorce, he says, uh, quote, what Jesus is contrasting is not his own law and the law of the Old Testament but rather the true import and intent of the Old Testament law as authoritatively interpreted by himself, by Jesus, on the one hand, and the perversions and distortions to which that law had been subjected by pharisaical and rabbinical externalism on the other. In other words, Jesus, again, is saying, yes, allowance was made for certificates of divorce in the Old Testament, because of, of the sin and the wiggle room that I allowed, but no more, no more. Now I, Jesus, am speaking something uh, more in-depth, more forceful to this concept of marriage. The force of Matthew 5, 31, 32 is that illicit sexual intercourse is the only ground by which a man may put away his wife. Note, may put away his wife. It is not mandated. I've known not many, but I've known, well, I'll I'll use the word many. I'm not worried about that. I've known many couples who've battled through this sin and sharpened their marriage, deepened their marriage through solid repentance and forgiveness. So we're not talking about something that's mandated here or obligated. The evil of divorce for any other reason derives from the fact that such an unwarranted and illicit divorce causes the woman to become an adulteress. In other words, if Jesus says the only grounds for divorce is adultery, but you choose to divorce your wife because of uh, irreconcilable differences or something uh, mundane like uh, is so often the case today, you will turn your wife and yourself into an adulterer or adulteress because you have illicitly broken what only God has put together. The first marriage is still in God's sight regarded as inviolate and absolutely indissoluble. That takes us back to early Genesis because in a marriage you have become one flesh. One flesh cannot easily be separated. And the vows are, again, till death do us part. So it follows, therefore, that the man who divorces his wife for any reason other than adultery also would be guilty of adultery because he is then going to go out from that, what he thinks is a dissolved marriage, and either engage in sexual behavior or marry down the line, marry to a second, have a second marriage. If he does that, having divorced his first wife or anything but adultery, he becomes an adulterer. Now, let me just put a caveat in. As, I, as you go through these um, very sobering paragraphs, again, forgiveness 
is a clarion call of Christianity. Jay Adams, I've, I've given you a Jay Adams book on your handout that is very, very comprehensive. It's a short book, but it goes into all aspects of marriage, all aspects of remarriage, all aspects of divorce. But Jay Adams, who is, who is often categorized as being a, a, a very uh, no-holds-barred, strident, uh, you'll find no sunshine in Jay Adams. Uh, having known Jay Adams, he was my Sunday school teacher, actually, in Macon, Georgia, uh, before I knew it was Jay Adams, I just knew some guy named Jay Adams was my Sunday school teacher, and he knew a whole lot about Scripture. Uh, but in Jay's book, gentleness and forgiveness comes through over and over and over again. So for people who, for instance, may find themselves after the fact having sinned in some way re- related to a marital divorce, I just call your attention to Psalm 51, David's Psalm of Repentance, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And this from a man who has sinned grievously in a marital context. Uh, Now, quickly, Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, also adduced, as evidence for this paragraph of the confession is not uh, surprisingly uh, something that, that just, uh, you can ignore. It's a very, very important passage of Scripture. I'll begin just with verse 3, Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came to Jesus to test him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Their question really amounts to this. If marriage is really indissoluble, if it is inviolable, if you can never, ever stop it except by death, if it is a union that man may not dissolve, how is it that Moses commands divorce? They, they keep they going back to this. As usual, again, they have misquoted Scripture. What Jesus responds in verses 8 and 9, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Again, this is not Jesus contradicting Moses. This is Jesus deepening the concepts of Old Testament marital uh, fidelity. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. We've been through the notion of commanded versus Jesus allowing. And again, even in the case of adultery, the most strident violation of this holy, holy union, forgiveness can reign It is not mandated that a man and a woman immediately throw up their hands and seek divorce. Uh, That's, again, one of the so vital to understand why we are, as Christians, we are in the church. We're in a broader audience of, of sinful people. We all know what it means to sin, and we all hopefully know what it means to repent of sin and receive forgiveness for it. Why? Why should that kind of tolerance be granted uh, in terms of uh, divorce? In the Old Testament, verse 8, Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart. So Moses was allowed this consideration because of the stubbornness of the Israelites. But Jesus goes on to say, but from the beginning it wasn't so. From the beginning there was no such permission. Now when you get to verse 9, Matthew 19, verse 9, Jesus completes the circle. 
by ascribing to any man who divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, that is adultery, and marries another, is himself guilty of committing adultery. We saw that also uh, in previous passages. So Jesus, here in this fifth paragraph, what they are alluding to, the the, uh, confession of faith alludes to, is the fact that adultery, Jesus says only adultery is something that I would allow a divorce. Now, final paragraph, paragraph six, we come to a second category of allowance. Although the corruption of man be such as is apt to study arguments unduly to put asunder those whom God hath joined together in marriage, yet nothing but adultery or Nothing but adultery or such willful desertion as can no way be remedied by the church or civil magistrate is cause sufficient of dissolving the bond of marriage, wherein a public and orderly course of proceeding is to be observed, and the persons concerned in it not left to their own wills and discretion in their own case. Uh, This is probably the most controversial paragraph in chapter 24. Again, approved but not mandated ground for divorce now becomes two, adultery or willful desertion. But notice carefully how it interprets willful desertion. Such willful desertion as can no way be remedied. Stridency uh, comes in uh, in that passage. Now, this concern of the... The assembly comes from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15. I'm going to begin with verse 10. Verses 10 and 11, Paul says, To the married I give this charge, and then in parenthesis in your Bibles, Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, to the rest I say, in parenthesis, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there's a couple of incredibly important insights into marriage in those words. He says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. This is verse 15. This is the one verse that the confession cites. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Okay, the first thing I want uh, to make certain that we see, just as we saw in Jesus' speaking, when Paul in these passages begins, and, and even in parenthesis, verses 10 and 11, he says, Not I, but the Lord. And then when he gets to verse uh, beyond that, he says, not the Lord, but I, in parenthesis. Now, again, people have taken that, especially the second iteration of it, where Paul says, not the Lord saying this, I'm saying this. 
People see that often as some sort of step down in authority. Uh, The first one, Jesus says, not Paul, Jesus is saying it. But the second one, Paul says, uh, this is me talking, not Jesus. And many, many people read that passage, therefore, to say that, well, the first one I really have to listen to because Jesus said that. The second one I don't have to worry about because that's just Paul talking. That is, again, completely erroneous way to read this passage. Uh, Paul is saying in verses 10 and 11, if separation has actually taken place, then certain provisions must be adhered to. Let the breach be healed. Failing that under no conditions may another marriage be undertaken. He's dealing in those two verses with marriages in which both spouses are Christians. Beginning in verse 12, he takes up an entirely different category of marriage, that of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. Now, we've already said repeatedly, a believer must marry a believer. That of a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, how do we get to that place? But again, the, the important issue when he starts that 12th verse, I not the Lord, This, uh, what he's saying is, I am now going to address issues of marriage which our Lord did not address while he was here on earth. Scripture is authoritative, period, wherever you find it. Genesis 1-1 all the way to the end of Revelation. Scripture is authoritative, inerrant, true truth. Paul is not saying, you don't need to listen to me very well because Jesus didn't say this after all. He's saying when Jesus was here, he, ad- he addressed the issue of adultery. Now that I'm here, I'm addressing the issue of willful desertion. Equally valid. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'm just, uh, I'm going to forget uh, what I've got here and just tell you that in four different previous churches over the last uh, decades, I have been in sessions Uh, Some as a ruling elder, some as a teaching elder. And I have seen on a couple of occasions this notion of desertion come up. There are people in the Reformed camp who do not think that desertion uh, is an easy thing to prove. I have been, uh, it it just is so painful when a married couple comes in and perhaps uh, the woman says, uh, my husband beats me every night. Is that cause for desertion? Is that a, an explanation of this word desertion? Could you use that to say that the husband has deserted his marriage? Those are issues that come before sessions on occasion, and they are awful, awful, and awfully hard to deal with. But the notion of the confession, and I believe what the confession is stating here, I think they are biblically accurate. There are two reasons for divorce. One, adultery. Secondly, willful desertion. Obviously, if somebody just leaves, you come home one day and all the drawers are empty and there's no sight of any human and they're gone, that's pretty crystal clear. But can can you get anything else in the definition of desertion? That is a very difficult question uh, that uh, sessions often have to to struggle with. Uh, I know very, very committed Reformed scholars who say absolutely not. Uh, Jesus suffered, and therefore, if your husband is beating you, you should be pleased that you have the role of sufferer. Uh, I don't find that compelling logic. 
Uh, but again, this is an issue that uh, the sixth chapter uh, of the sixth paragraph of chapter 24 will bring up. Again, having looked at this chapter, all I want to emphasize to you is love, forgiveness, openness, repentance, faith in what Scripture is teaching. It's easy to read this and get lost in the, in the permutations of it. That's precisely why I wanted to give you a handout to see a couple of additional books uh, that I think are very helpful in terms of, of marriage. And they help on many levels uh, for many different reasons. I'm sure you've all got your favorites. Uh, but, um, but take these sorts of things as you would take anything else. Only the, they are very serious matters to discuss. Uh, come to your pastors. Come to your elders. Come to your friends. If, if any issues are going on and marriages, as, as Jay Adams used to define a marriage, is putting two sinners under one roof. Uh, that means you're going to have difficulties. The Bible gives you directives of how to deal and solve those difficulties. Use them. Use one another. Use the wisdom that you know you have found in friends or family or church members or, or leaders. And walk slowly in this, uh, in this uh, line, but walk faithfully. You are united in an indissoluble union, and that is a glorious thing. Marriage can, can lead you into some of the most difficult and painful events of your life, and they can take you up to pinnacles that you would never know without it. It is a gift from God. And with Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, it becomes more and more glorious as the years go by. May the Lord bless all of us in our families and in our marriages. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we... Uh, we undertake a very difficult uh, chapter in this, in this particular 24th uh, chapter of, of the confession, but uh, the truths are there. Your love is there uh, to enfold us. You have given us marriage. What, a, what a, an incredible gift you have given us in this estate. Uh, Father, we are sinful people, and we will mess it up, and we will have times of great difficulty but when we do, your word speaks to our hearts, Father, and gives us a pathway forward that ultimately will lead to better and better things if we will utilize them humbly, faithfully, on our knees, through prayer, and through honest, open communication with one another. Father, make us a humble, obedient people who enjoy the glory of being married and who look forward to that marriage getting better and better and better. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.